This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department's Cybercrime Center, known as DC3, has a new executive director. Joining me with what's new at DC3 and what he plans for this crucial office, that new director is Jude Sunderbrook. Mr. Sunderbrook, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to join you this morning. And there are so many apparati that are aimed at cybersecurity in the federal government. Let's take a minute just to remind us what the DC3 does, because it's Cyber Crime Center and not necessarily Cyber Security Center. Right. So the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, known as DC3, is one of several federal cyber centers. And so we have a role supporting the investigative agencies of the Department of Defense, but we also support defense-related cybersecurity efforts as well. So it's a really exciting mission. It's a, it's a shared group of stakeholders, both from the investigative agencies, a number of customers within the Department of Defense, and then a lot of partners in the defense industrial base as well. And we work hard to coordinate our efforts with other agencies around the federal government as well. And what particular resources or capabilities does DC-3 bring to, say, let's talk about the investigative side? Okay. Well, so there's several constituent parts of DC-3. One of them is we have a a really cutting-edge forensics laboratory capability. And so when the investigative agencies are out there working crimes, in some cases they have all the capability they need in-house. In some cases they find that we're able to bring some capabilities to, to bear where it's worthwhile to, to have those capabilities at the Department of Defense level. And so that might be uh, working to process evidence, to recover, uh, and to look at information that might be in a, a, a collected computer from a crime scene, things of that nature. And then that information is prepared and shared back with the investigative agency, and that can help to either prove or disprove the the innocence or guilt of somebody that's accused of a crime. And this is for those accused that are in the federal government, say members of the military, or is it beyond? Yeah, so the the military investigative agencies, the bulk of their investigative efforts are often tied to people that are within the Department of Defense, either active duty members or uh, it it could be um, uh, civilians or other people working on military bases. There are times that the investigative agencies are involved in investigations off installations, and those are done in concert with uh, the Department of Justice, state and local prosecutors, and other entities. For, for us, the investigative agencies go out and lawfully collect the evidence. They either process it in-house, or sometimes they share it with us, and then we try to bring our advanced capabilities to bear to support them. So you must have, like, forensic capabilities to look into hard drives or to web traffic and that kind of thing? It's really exciting, in fact. They have a, you know, in some cases, uh, evidence has been damaged or destroyed, either intentionally or or just unintentionally. And so there can be evidence that could be recovered from, say, a damaged hard drive, and uh, uh, our staff can work to recover that information. It can also be that um, we're looking at, at the actual evidence, and so that could be involving an X-raying it. So we have, like, X-ray capabilities here. So there's a lot of stuff that would be hard to do kind of all around the globe because the Department of Defense is such a large organization. So in some cases, our lab provides that support. And really, almost every crime nowadays has a cyber component, though, doesn't it? It really does. And so it could be that it's collected evidence. It could also be, though, that um, there's elements uh, of the criminal activity uh, alleged that has uh, taken place in an online context. 
And so we have some other resources we bring to bear to support those kinds of things. So we have a cyber training academy here that helps prepare investigators and analysts and professional staff from the investigative agencies to be well-trained to investigate the cyber aspect of those investigations. And there are other um, analytical capabilities we, we have here where sometimes we're able to look at information that has been collected by either the Department of Defense investigative teams uh, or by others, and we can help share insights um, because we have people that are experts in different kinds of uh, situations, whether that is supporting efforts related to ransomware um, or other kinds of uh, malicious activity. We are speaking with Jude Sunderbrook. He is executive director of the DOD Cyber Crime Center, the DC-3, and you bring a history of forensic and forensic analysis from the Air Force to this. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I've, I've been really fortunate to have had a, a career that has brought me into a lot of different settings. So I started off as a special agent with the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigations back in 1994. And so I served seven years on active duty with OSI. And then just prior to 9-11, um, I was going to graduate school. I went into the reserves. And um, after 9-11, I had the opportunity to come back on full-time. And eventually, I became a civilian special agent with OSI, in addition to serving as a reservist. So I've kind of had two careers. One of them has been on the, as a civil servant, and that's been with OSI. And that included the opportunity to serve in a joint uh, duty assignment over at FBI Cyber Division, which was really a rewarding opportunity to work with our partners over there. And then as a reservist, I've had the opportunity to serve in a number of settings, including as part of the broader uh, uh, U.S. Cybercom team during a recent assignment as well. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that it's really been interesting to see the evolution of cyber and the federal government across the last several years. And I think it really comes down to teamwork. And so I'm excited to bring just some of these different experiences as I join the team here at DC3. And having joined this whole enterprise in some manner in 94, that was at a time when not even every desktop in the federal government had a computer on it, and they weren't necessarily even all networked at that time. So you must have seen a lot of change in forensics, in the use of computers in investigation, and in the investigation of computers. I sure have. You know, when I started, we had typewriters, and we, had, uh, we did have desktop computers, but they were not networked. So I remember when they came in and they began networking them. You know, in those early days, a lot of our work when it came to forensics as uh, investigators on the street was making sure that we had responsibly sieved all of the computer-related materials at a crime scene. So that could have been five-and-a-quarter floppies or three-and-a-half-inch floppy drives, hard drives, the various constituent parts of a computer, and then sending that off to the lab for processing. And there's still an element of that today. But now there's so much information that is stored in so many different ways that it really has come down to teaming to figure out who is best prepared to support a particular thing. And so um, I think one of the things that's exciting kind of across um, not just the federal government, but also with state local partners and international partners is how we're all working to share best practices with each other in this space. And what are your plans for DC3 that is to say, how will you ensure that it keeps up with the latest in techniques, the latest in technology? Because as you point out, this is a moving target. Well, I think there's going to be several parts to it. So right now, because of the broad array of cyber threats um, that um, people in the United States face and our Department of Defense faces, 
there's a, a lot of different entities that are involved. So there's, there's portions of the Department of Justice, certainly, Department of Homeland Security, um, fusion centers, state and local law enforcement, and then the military investigative agencies, as well as, importantly, the private sector, which really just has absolutely incredible capabilities. You know, I think one of the themes of the time that I have the privilege of serving here at DC3 is going to be partnership. And so I've been taking some initial steps to take a look at how we structure our partner engagement efforts. And I think that's probably where we're really going to be investing a lot of time. Uh, we want to make sure that we're non-duplicative of what others are doing, but we also want to make sure that there aren't any gaps and seams. So I think that in partnership with our colleagues from across the Department of Defense, with the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and some of our state, local, and international partners, we'll really have an opportunity to refine our mission space and to really to support uh, those entities out there that rely on our services. And finally, how, how big is DC3 in terms of federal employees and contractor support? Well, all told, it's a little bit more than 450 people right now. Um, and then they are connected and support a much broader network of those investigative entities. But when you add everybody up, it's about 450 people. All right. And should we all continue to keep TikTok off of our phones? Well, I will tell you that, you know, that is a, that's a broad policy decision. <laughs> I will tell you that um, I, am, I am careful about a lot of things that I install on my phone personally. But I will also tell you probably because I go back to those typewriter days, Sometimes I just listen to the radio on the radio, and so I, I tend to be a little bit careful, but I do think it's a good idea for people to reach out. There's a lot of great advisories that the FBI and DHS and others put out, so everybody's going to have to make up their own choice, uh, but for me, I tend to keep it simple. Dr. Jude Sunderbrook is Executive Director of the DOD Cyber Crime Center, just recently appointed. Thanks so much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. You have a great one. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about. Is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.